calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Thanks for tuning in to Bitches on Comics. This week, we have a trigger warning because we're talking about Warren Ellis comics and United States history. A lot of trigger warnings in that. You can read further notes on the episode guide at our website, www.bitchesoncomics.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome back for another episode of Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleenor. And I'm Sarah Sentry. And today we have a very special guest, Veronique Emma Hubois. Hello. It's awesome to be here. This is now finally the third time that I've done a podcast with Sarah. I yeah. think that we're, it's three now or four? Three? Nope. We're at three right now. We're and this, now. this is the second one in the last couple months. So Yes. It's it's very exciting. Went for literal years without doing it. And here we are. <laughs> it's always kind of weird to try to describe myself because I am in one of those kind of multi-hyphenates because I bounce around in different things. But um, most relevant to this podcast is that I have worked in and around the comic book industry as a creator, a consultant, and a critic. I'm best known for critical writing, some of which has been published in some really neat places like Critical Chips for Short Box. And, um, you know, I, I did a script for uh, DC and IDW's Love is Love anthology that was responding to the Pulse shooting a while ago. But I, I typically write a column called Transmascara for Comicosity, which is just my sort of like freeform whatever I want to write about comics with. And I'm also a drag queen and my drag name is Due to Slays. And I very occasionally do Red from the Rafters where I just kind of do stream of consciousness and culture critique and that kind of stuff but typically you can just find me on twitter at uh, emma hubois e-m-m-a-h-o-u-x-b-o-i-s excellent so i was gonna say too that the suspiria review <laughs> that you did as judith i still think about because i watched it right after the movie so it turned into i believe that that's a fairly long episode and so it went from this extremely long movie to watching this very long review about it and so it just made an entire experience out of it so i appreciate you doing that thank you it was like it ran over two hours it was very early into my like 
recording videos phase and I thought that I could actually handle my shit if I was drinking while I was doing it and that was clearly <laughs> a huge mistake because <laughs> like there's all of these like wild tangents into the principles of Freudian psychoanalysis and, and they're legit but you know it, it could have been boiled down into five minutes instead of you know 15 minutes with a lot of hand waving but I <laughs> really appreciate that you actually stuck through that entire thing because I do really adore that movie in its own way. I don't like to compare it to the older one because they're both great movies doing two very, very different things. But mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so in you know in, in prose, you know, if I'm gonna sit down and do something like write about Iron Man Extremis, <laughs> you know, I can run for you know, seven thousand, eight thousand, sometimes up to twelve thousand words and, and kind of edit down and go, 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 go. So it's it's a much more forgiving medium, I think, when I am in print and kind of why I sort of have two wildly different personalities out there where if you read my stuff in, in prose, it's it's very focused, it's very to the point. But if you catch me talking or like on video, things go a little haywire. <laughs> I don't know. It's so cool that you have these two different ways of talking about a lot of the stuff that I care about. So it's awesome. But you just had this article that went up on Comicosity, I believe, which was about Iron Man Extremis. And <laughs> yeah, I was kind of amazed by this. I mean, I'm amazed by a lot of your work. So this might be a repetitive statement. But I was very interested. A, I have no idea why you started, I guess, the Warren Ellis retrospective, kind of, because you wrote a little bit about other series by Ellis. Well, it all started with Next Wave Agents of Hate. And then the whole thing, I've actually three or four different times forgotten why I did it. But it's actually in, <laughs> in at the very end of, of that piece, very helpfully, was that uh, Steve Morris at Shelf Dust did this really, really cool thing where he contacted like 100 critics and asked them for their top 10 single issues of all time. And then he aggregated them and found out from 100 to 1 what the most popular ones along the way were and what and kind of created the closest thing that we've had to a critical consensus in comics since the comics create internet was like six blogs on like, you know, blogger and, and, and WordPress like over 10 years ago. So because of how kind of fractured and disjointed and just how many different, I used to call them like audiences that comic book sites try to reach, you know, a lot of us just don't travel in the same circles. So it was really neat that Steve just went all the way out there and found all these people. And we learned just so much in that moment about what people read, what they like, and, and why they care about it in a way that I don't think I had ever seen since I started writing about comics. Well, I guess kind of came back in a big way and made a name for myself in 2014 when I started at the Rainbow Hub and, and got a piece in a bitch. But the, the thing that struck me about it is that there was like, I think there was only like two Warren Ellis comics in the entire thing. And one of them was an issue of Moon Knight, which is certainly cool, but it was just such a, a hyper contemporary example of Ellis's work that is is kind of a weird thing to be like the one thing pretty much that made it in there because like I've been reading Warren Ellis since the early 2000s like 
I don't know if I started started with 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 Transmetropolitan, or maybe I read a little bit of the Authority first. But so I've been reading his comics for almost twenty years and jumping around in terms of the publishing order. So it was just kind of really shocking to me that he had fallen so far out of the critical zeitgeist. But when I did the math, you see like there's a tons of Matt Fraction. I think there's a little bit of Kelly Sue DeConnick in there. There's Brian K. Vaughn. There was like Kieran Gillen as far as writers go. So a, a lot of the writers that were in there were people that I remember, you know, worked their way into the comic book industry and got famous through Whitechapel and Warren Ellis's other websites uh, where he had like created these little pre-Twitter communities for people to chat at you know i saw the dead laptop somewhere that that has a sticker from the engine on it you know so i was kind of like well let's let's school these kids a little bit like let's teach them about uncle warren that you know he existed before castlevania and you know i kind of understand it because if you've been reading comics for only five years or maybe 10 years and you jumped in a wow like saga blew your mind because you never read a brian k vaughn comic before or whatever and, and that's cool by, or, you know, Wiktiv was your big entry point into the industry. And I'm like, I'm seeing how young and how new this critical establishment is, you know. Um, and so I was kind of like, well, geez, I want to show them why this was so neat and, and why to jump into it. And, and I don't know why, for the love of God, I decided that Next Wave was the Warren Ellis comic I, I had to start with. But that's <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, I mean, this is a person who has been writing comics for pretty much a billion years. I remember probably the first thing I read from him was maybe Excalibur. I think it might have been the Moira McTaggart gets drunk at the bar <laughs> and cries and Rain has to help carry her home era. But yeah, I, I've been reading his comics, I believe, pretty much as long as I've been reading comics. It might have been a couple of years difference or something, but... It's very interesting how long he's been around and kind of how ubiquitous he was for a while because he did that Hellstrom series just, you know, kind of comes in halfway through and makes this really interesting series out of something that was absolutely flailing. And I think that that was kind of his mark for a little while. It's sort of the same as like a Grant Morrison or something where people are like, will you take this? You know, nobody else is doing this. And he kind of jumps in. So after seeing kind of a lot of his creator-owned stuff, like, trans, I mean, I guess, I mean, yeah, Transmetropolitan, that would qualify as a creator-owned book, yeah. I mean, I guess it's like through Vertigo, but... Yeah, it, it is. I mean, technically it started under Helix, which was going to be... That's right. DC's attempt at more of a uh, 2000 AD or like um, heavy metal type of a sci-fi focused thing because you'll you'll still see every once in a while pictures of the first issue with that on it. But it got moved to Transmetropolitan, so it's it's considered as like a second generation creator owned Vertigo title because the the holy trinity of the first three major um, creator owned titles of Vertigo were like uh, the Invisibles, Preacher, and it was Invisibles and Preacher. <laughs> it was two. And then everything else kind of fanned out from there. But yeah. Right. So this is somebody who's just been around forever. And now he kind of has, I guess, his own corners that he kind of gets to play with. And it's stuff that he started a really long time ago. And I just don't know if he foresaw where it was going to end up going, <laughs> you know, if he would still be working on these characters such a long time later. But it's interesting to see him doing books like Supreme Blue Rose or, you know, The Wildstorm, all of that stuff after years and years and years, you know, he he does so many interesting books, I think, that he has to be one of the better comic writers 
because I find, you know, so much of it very compelling in a way that holds up. I was really surprised by Iron Man Extremis because I really wrote that book off whenever it first came out. I'm not an Iron Man fan, but it's actually a really good book. And I was kind of shocked by that, I guess, because it's really hard to make me like Tony Stark. I also struggle with Tony Stark. <laughs> I find, I, uh, I, I, I mean, RDJ is one thing. I'm sorry, he's just so pretty. But Tony Stark, I've just always been like, I don't know, man. But especially having read your article, I was like, okay, I can see all these layers and resonance here that I hadn't read Extremis before I'd, I'd read your article. I found it like fascinating, actually. And I always enjoy Ellis's dialogue personally. I think it's one of the things he is best at. And I just really was able to get into the story and appreciate what was happening with the different characters and their backgrounds and what Ellis was gesturing to off the page in sort of Americana history. You know, I, I didn't know a lot about the Ruby Ridge incident or any of that. I remember seeing it as a kid, but it was different to sort of read about it in, in your work. And then I went and read some things off the page as well reinforcing everything that's happening at play in Extremis and how different Extremis is the comic versus the trilogy for how it situates the person's power who takes on Extremis. I thought that was pretty freaking incredible. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I made a joke when we released the the article that um, my original title for it was Only True 90s Kids Remember the Oklahoma City Bombing. Right. <laughs> and, and and this is the, that's kind of the whole thing about Extremis, but you know, to dial back a little bit, like, you know, you both said you have trouble liking Tony Stark, but the, the whole thing is that y you are never, ever supposed to like Tony Stark. Like, you, you go back to what, what Stan Lee says that he originally thought, you know, and then God rest <laughs> Stan Lee, because he loves to go back and reinvent what he originally said. Um, oh, yeah. But if you take it on faith, he he was trying to create an anti-hero, somebody who would be difficult to root for. And so he was like, what about a war profiteer, right? Um, and of course, he doesn't actually have the, the scripting credit for the first issue. So it's kind of tough to know exactly, you know, without talking to the other creators who actually ended up executing the original idea, whether they carried forward with trying to make him unlikable or not, because I don't think they do. He comes across as the dashing cold warrior that he that he has been for most of his history. So Warren Ellis, you know, at various times has lamented the fact that the Jack Kirby and, and Stan Lee really brought superheroes back from the brink of destruction. Um, and, and he kind of hated that fact for a long time and he's tried to kill superheroes and he's raged against them for a long time. He stopped doing that. He hasn't been doing that for over 10 years now. He's just kind of like, well, it is what it is and, and, and here we are. <laughs> um, but it's so ironic because... He kind of goes back to the purity of the original concept of that original statement by Stan Lee and says, what if I made this guy who was tough to cheer for because of the industry that he works in, right? And it's some of the dialogue in Extremis is so hard to believe that it got through now after that whole shit show when there was that, that defense contractor, was it Northrop Grumman or whatever they're called? Yeah. Did, did that propaganda comic advertisement for Marvel Comics where it was like, you can be the real Tony Stark, you know, oh, yeah. and, and build the drones that uh, that kill people at weddings in, in Afghanistan, you know, and, and people rightly said, fuck you, right, to, to that. And, yes. and and you go back now, and, and I think Extremis, not just Extremis, obviously, but Extremis was one of the reasons why people had such a v visceral reaction to saying no 
absolutely not do do we want this in marvel comics you know because alice stepped up and he reminded us because there's the that that great exchange with the documentary filmmaker where he's saying like you build landmines that has to be as far as technology goes and defense contracting war related stuff building and selling and deploying landmines has to be one of the most despicable things that you can do, right? And, yes. you know, and, and we have kind of uh, Lady Diana and the Ottawa Treaty to uh, to thank for that because they mm-hmm. said, like, look, like, these children all over the world getting their legs blown off um, and dying and all this stuff, just completely innocent civilians dying under these things. And Warren Ellis convinced Joe Casada, I believe that's who the EIC would have been at the time, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to say that this is what Tony Stark did. This is who Tony Stark was, and to really hammer that home so early yeah. in the comic. And, and, and that it was a legacy thing, right? That his dad had been that involved in like things that were not that, but that were also equally terrible, right? The Manhattan Project. <laughs> right. Which, which, you know, by implication means that what happened in uh, Winter Soldier with, with Hydra you know, and S.H.I.E.L.D. bringing in Hydra people to work for them from the beginning is, is just a metaphor for, for Operation Paperclip, right? For right. The, the Nazi physicists and scientists being brought on to work on nuclear weapons and whatnot in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the heavy implication there is that, is that, yeah, like Howard Stark was definitely working with Nazis on the Manhattan Project. And in the movies, of course, the Manhattan Project is the huge metaphor for like the one great thing that Howard Stark did that creates the legacy for Tony to to answer to. And they never critique the Manhattan Project because it's right. like a, a, a Disney. Well, I mean, I know they start out under <laughs> Paramount, but especially after but, Disney, Mr. Pro-Nuclear Walt Disney, that, yeah, right? Right. Yeah, good God. A lot of the stuff that you brought up in this article that to me is so interesting, like something I love about a lot of your work is, is that it helps set a time and a tone and you have the space to do that. And that's always something that's really great. And, you know, something that I think adds a lot to your pieces because it helps me to be like, right, these other 17 things were happening (laughs) at that time. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. 
especially with a comic like this that absolutely puts it in its time. But what was really interesting was you talking about the differences politically between a lot of these writers that were bringing us similar stories, right? I mean, obviously Extrema stands on its own because it's something that's kind of Rather than vindicating Tony, I think it definitely implicates him in a lot of really terrible things. And then he has to struggle with that. And then it's not even totally about his struggle. (laughs) It's about a lot of other things that are going on. And so I think that he does it right in a lot of ways. And some other writers do as well. But you were bringing up a lot of, and of course, this links to your, you know, Lois Lane article a little bit, talking about this time period, how a lot of writers, even if they were liberal or if they were conservative, were kind of Doubting that same party line that war is absolutely necessary. No matter what direction you go in, you're going to have to have a war, you know? And so I think that that was part of what was so compelling about this piece in specific was just kind of being like, I think about the history of propaganda in comics, because <laughs> there's always been propaganda in comics, but the placement of this exact time period where everything was raring up, I guess, you talking about the way that Ellis intersects with those other stories, I think was really interesting. Yeah, um, and, and, it, and it gets down to, to interventionism, right? And you, you had mentioned that I did that deep dive into Greg Rucka's history, and in how he does this institutional lens on comics, how he views comics through the intelligence um, agencies, right, or through the military, um, and, and these other kind of ways where he just has this hyper-institutional lens and how he guided the way that espionage and the military were viewed in Marvel and DC Comics with, with such a firm and unmistakable hand. Um, and it's a fascinating part of Ruckus' history, but interventionism specifically is such a fascinating topic in superhero comics because they're entirely a product of the 20th century. And you go back to World War II, and this is like one of the things to me about Warren Ellis, like I've, I, I've used this phrase in like three different pieces. I call him a restless oil painter because if you read a lot of his work close together, you start to see the rhymes. You start to see him taking an essay that he wrote for GQ you know, that, like, I don't know, five people might remember. And then he puts exact lines of dialogue from that into the wild storm. There's this whole paranoid rant about Elon Musk. And you're like, holy shit, he actually keeps track of all of the stuff that he writes. Like, he somehow has it organized <laughs> so that he can come back to it later. And I was like, this dude is so organized. This is wild. Especially for someone whose body of work is so obscenely diffuse. He's even just in comics, but beyond that, he has done little things everywhere. He is spread out everywhere. He is those little cluster munitions that, that they talk about in the comic. You, you find little bits and pieces of his stuff everywhere. So I try to open myself up the same way and present these ideas as I find them, knowing that Ellis might change his perspective on them or I might change my perspective on them. So I want to open myself to build for future pieces because when I did Lois Lane, well, like I wrote the Lois Lane piece halfway through the Iron Man piece. So I already knew what I was doing because the extremist piece was was long coming. You see references to it in my piece on the Wild Storm because I started to understand these rhyming things between uh, Maya Hansen and the new version of the engineer and so on. So I, I got to thinking about interventionism. And actually, a great dovetail to this is anybody who's watching the HBO series, The Plot Against America. You'll understand exactly what I'm talking about here, because interventionism, military interventionism in the 1930s, in the run-up to World War II, and when World War II happened, a large part of it was driven by Jewish Americans who saw what was happening. They're like, we need 
to stop. We didn't really have the term the Holocaust, but they knew what it was. And like, we have to intervene and stop this. It was a clear, strong humanitarian case. And you had people like Neville Chamberlain in England who were not stepping up. They're like, yeah, sure, let's hand Hitler Czechoslovakia. So Captain America number one is a brick through the fucking window because, you know, Lindbergh uh, obviously didn't win. He wasn't the president in real life. But in the plot against America, you do see this stuff ramping up and how he was using a right-wing anti-Semitic isolationism and cloaking it in in this candy-colored, like, you know, we don't want to send our boys away to war. War is bad. We don't need another war. So he's trying to make it sound like he's a pacifist or that he cares about the lives of average Americans when it's a complete lie and he just does not care about the plight of the Jewish population and the, and the other people persecuted by the Nazis in Europe, and that he would prefer to collaborate with the Nazis, right? And then and, and that was a time period in which you could fill Madison Square Garden with Nazi fifth columnists in the United States, right? That interventionism with a clear humanitarian case could in some places be unpopular and difficult to push for, right? My big thing there is, is that interventionism is bipartisan. It's not necessarily a partisan issue. It depends on where it is that they want to intervene and and into what they want to intervene. Because obviously John Bolton is an interventionist, right? He was gung-ho to lead that war in Iraq. He was trying to lead us into a war with Iran when he was in the Trump administration. But he goes back to these same goofballs that were pushing Bill Clinton to the right on these issues, right? And, and Bill Clinton was a big interventionist president. You know, if you've seen that Ridley Scott movie, Black Hawk Down, right? And, right, you, and right. you look at Somalia, Sarajevo, all of these, these missions and interventionism, military interventionism into these conflicts was an internationally popular thing. There were UN missions that were being sent to these places, right? So you see that reflected almost identically with people who would be at each other's throats now, like Chuck Dixon on the right <laughs> yeah. and Craig Rucka on the left. Right, but like, right. if you were reading them in the 90s, in the late 90s and up to 2003, and you were just looking at the kind of comics they were writing like Birds of Prey and Checkmate and all of this, then like they are not that politically different when it comes to foreign policy because neither one of them were writing comics about gay marriage and, and health care at that time right they weren't that wasn't on the on the cultural docket so you couldn't see the political fault lines between these guys who are now i I guess chuck dixon is pretty hyper partisan i wouldn't say that greg rucka is a hyper partisan rabble rouser but like the way that they get touted and invoked in the industry is that they're the north pole and the south pole right Mm -hmm. whereas Back then, on this particular set of issues, they were almost in lockstep. But Warren Ellis comes in, and he looks at this, and and everybody's talking about invading, already invaded uh, Afghanistan, going to invade Iraq. And he does this, this new origin story for Iron Man that he had to have known they were going to use this for a movie. There's no way that he didn't. But there had to be something in the air, something in the water, because of how Extremis was put together and how perfectly it made it into the movies. And the fact that Addy Granov was hired away immediately to work on the films as soon as that movie was, or sorry, the comic was done, basically, Mm -hmm. that they kind of had some idea that this was going to be pushed to the Hollywood wing of the company. So Ellis comes in, and like, the Al-Qaeda stuff is two panels. You don't even see him get kidnapped. 
right? Ellis is like, yeah, sure, it makes sense that Tony Stark would be in Afghanistan and that Al-Qaeda would kidnap him, but that's it. He's like, I don't give a shit about this. I'm I'm not going to write a gung-ho, let's invade the Middle East comic. And then he pivots to a white supremacist domestic terrorist, right? And in 2020, we're like, yeah, that's a story that makes a lot of fucking sense, right? Right, After Charleston, after all of this, suddenly America has remembered that there's white supremacist terrorists, you know, (laughs) lurking under under every rock and bunker in in middle America and and, in parts of the Inland Empire in California to boot. But they never went away. And this is the whole point that Malin, this dude who gets a hold of the extremist virus or whatever it is you want to call it, he was one of the kids at Ruby Ridge. So the entire point was the continuity that the entire culture and media did a 180 and pivoted to be like radical Islam is the bugbear of the day when like 30 seconds ago, it was right-wing militias. And those right-wing militias didn't say, oh, geez, well, guess we're not going to blow the federal government now. We're just going to, you know, get Walmart greeter jobs or something. No, they they continue to believe the same things they believed and, and get ready to do the things that they do. So that was kind of the point in Malin. His own life is the proof of the continuity of what everybody was missing, everybody was ignoring in this in this rush to war and this this rush into Islamophobia. And that's what really makes extremists such a unique and powerful comic for its era. And especially to look back now and see it vindicated in ways that nobody would want them to. I mean, you know, Warren Ellis wasn't like, oh man, I certainly can't wait when these these kooks start showing up again. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, nobody wants wanted to be right about this right but the point was saying these guys are still here they've been here the whole time right well and i love that you make all these these parallels as well and and they're in the text a woman that malin meets she's waiting for a bus i think and she's like a young woman and she's being harassed by people because she fits like a quote-unquote profile and what i thought was really powerful in in your essay is is you take the time to really talk about like they're there isn't really a profile in the sense that we thought there was and where people were like, oh, if we can just find who the shooter is, then we can do, you know, whatever it is people think they're going to do. You really point it back to like, come on, people. It's because we don't want to talk about the obvious problem, which is guns. It's like the the comic has all these reflective surfaces and it's just constantly aiming back at us what is happening underlying in society, framing Tony Stark as this like deeply political this deeply polemic character. And I think that that just pays off so well in Extremis. And I think that, frankly, for me, I, I think it would have probably not paid off as well had I not seen it through the lenses and all the additional layers you point out. I think it's really incredible. It's it's like you were saying, creepily prescient for the time we are living right now comic. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that was actually that scene. And it's just two pages because she's, she's a high school student on suspension for quote unquote terroristic writing because she wrote a story about her, her town in Texas being invaded by zombies. And like, I remember that scene when I came back to read the comic, but I didn't remember exactly what she said and what their conversation was. And it was a really just emotionally pummeling scene for me to go back through, right? Because, like, I'm 35. I was in middle school when Columbine happened, right? Like, I was 13, I think, roughly, at that time. Um, and I had, I had cousins, like, I was growing up in Canada, right? But I had, I had cousins in Denver, all we knew. My mom picks me up from school. She's upset. She's crying. I don't know what's going on. All she knows, because remember, this, this is, like, 
dial-up internet days. There's no Twitter. There's no social media. There's none of this stuff. All we know is there's been a school shooting in Colorado. And obviously, it's a big state, right? But you, you'd expect it to be somewhere urban or something. You don't know. So obviously, we get a hold of my cousins. They're they're in Denver. They're nowhere near Littleton, where Columbine is. But, you know, you remember that. And it's and it's something that sticks with you the same way as, you know, where were you when, when the towers hit? But you saw the culture change. You saw what was happening. Right. I was going to say that I remember specifically this time period because I was in Colorado. And they did um, Buffy. <laughs> they couldn't show the season finale of yeah, Buffy for like three, three months. Because yeah. they, it was students that were attacking the principal, yeah, and he turns principal. into a giant snake. But then people were mocking that as well and saying, wow, that's too sensitive. And then there were the people who were saying, well, it was the Basketball Diaries. It was, you know, mm. the Matrix that made people do this. And remember we were talking about the Joker movie, and a lot of people had that really strong knee-jerk reaction that this is really going to empower the wrong kind of people. And you made a point that has always stuck with mm-hmm. me on that, which is that they are already empowered by whatever they choose. And that, like, there's always... Mm-hmm. Always going to be something, you know, they found the frog, you know, like they found like all of this stuff that wasn't made for them, you know, mm-hmm. they'll always read that into it, you know, so I think that that was one of the things that you've said that I always remember, because I'm always just like, mm-hmm. that's completely right. Like, I was not down to see the Joker movie myself. But at the same time, it made me be kind of like, this is really not the thing that people are making it out to be, I guess. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of Fight Club. You know, and and I don't I don't care who I was just gonna say who, Fight Club. <laughs> yeah, and and that was why I said what I said about Joker. Um, but I I kind of took Sarah Horrocks's lead on that, who's a brilliant cartoonist in her own right. You know, we remember what it was like in the Columbine era, in the immediate post nine eleven era, and when they were coming after anybody that stepped out of line in the wrong way you know, culturally, and they would do that. But this was a thing. And and there there was a weird hypocrisy where people would call out Fight Club, but they wouldn't call out The Matrix. And I don't know to what extent The Matrix should have been called out, right? But, you know, uh, what is the name of the frat boy director of uh, of Joker? What is his name? Brad Phillips? Is oh, that it? Todd Phillips. What is it? Todd Phillips. <laughs> Todd, Todd Phillips, so, yes. <laughs> so the brutal irony of what happened is Todd Phillips comes out and he says, well, they're all coming after us. In our movie, but you know, Keanu Reeves is doing John Wick, where he's this white dude, you know, mowing people down with machine guns and all of this. I mean, obviously, no, Keanu Reeves isn't white, but it was so cowardly because really, you're going to try to throw somebody else in in front of the bus instead of defending your artistic decisions and and kind of just the freedom of the arts in general. But then it it threw me for a loop because it, it was just this like, wait, I've been here before. Except for David Fincher isn't a fucking toddler, and he never went after the Matrix. But other people were saying it and pointing out the weird double think on that. And in the in the Hellblazer issue that I talk about very ambivalently, that Warren Ellis wrote and uh, and Phil Jimenez drew, and I forgot that Jimenez drew that, so that was quite the the mind fuck when I was like, oh my god, that's who drew this, but. They did that comic about a school shooting before Columbine because that there were other school shootings before Columbine, but it was like, you know, a, a couple of messed up kids in the middle of nowhere with it was their dad's hunting rifle, right? Stuff like that, as far as I can recall. But it's written right in the comic. And they talk about Marilyn Manson. They talk about all of the stuff that, that got targeted in the culture after Columbine, but the, but Ellis turned that script in three months before Columbine happened. So I noticed this parallel in the analysis around Lois Lane and also around extremists where the way things are just slightly twisted versus their their reality counterpart or their filmic counterpart is really important. So in extremists, it's showing Tony actually helping unload 
the landmines and other weaponry that makes him the arms dealer versus in the films, I don't remember what they do, but he's like they're on a humanitarian thing or like talking to the Department of Defense. I don't remember. And then in the Lois Lane case, this was incredible that you pointed this out, the way that when Lois is ejected, the rest of the press starts pushing hard on the press secretary. But that's not what happens in reality to the to the people who've been kicked out. Most famously, I think you were saying Jim Acosta. And it's like, that's not fun. That's No one keeps that conversation going. It actually, it ends there out of a place of fear. And those actually mean really different things for the comics and the real world counterpart. And I just thought it was a... They're such small moments, but they're so incredibly important for how we actually frame these wider conversations. Yeah, um, well, in in Iron Man, the first movie, he's there to give a, a demonstration of the of the Jericho missile, and it like he is selling weapons to the army, but they're like cool cluster music right, munitions right, right. that like bunker burster types, similar to the types that they did deploy in Afghanistan to try to knock out the caves that Al Qaeda was in. So, you know, it, it was definitely an offensive weapon, but it was it was the kind that's a lot more socially acceptable than a landmine. But like the subtext of my Lois Lane piece was that, you know, when, when Sarah was saying, oh, you know, somebody out there saying, well, you know, Lois would be a conservative because of X, Y, and Z. And like the subtext of my piece was that the nightmare version of Lois Lane is Maureen Dowd, right? I mean, because the, the last line of my piece was that Lois would never let the Speaker of the House eat off of her plate. Um, and that was a Maureen Dowd column about Nancy Pelosi taking something off of her plate when they were out for lunch. And that's kind of where it is, is that the idea that centrism is not an ideology with its own goals and its own beliefs. It's just trying to tack towards the path of least resistance at all times. I mean, and, and that was kind of an issue for sure with the Lois Lane that comic Lois. and also that kind of, like as he said, the whole thing of this is hashtag resistance fanfic. It's not... A reflection of what's going on but it's like you know especially now which was not so much an issue for extremists like a decade ago but trying to chase the zeitgeist and, and get your your zippy you know reference to what happened last week into a comic book just does not work anymore because like mike perkins who drew the comic like he obviously traced sarah huckabee sanders in that scene and lois Lane number one, and it's like that podium had right. had cobwebs and and spiders and you know other non human creepy crawlies that aren't actually in the the Trump administration hanging out on it. Like nobody was doing those those press briefings anymore. You you can't just keep trying to chase what the cool moment is anymore because everything happens all at once. You kind of have to you know, to let it simmer and digest it. Or, you know, I always come back to what William Gibson says, that you have to create a world that feels perfectly antique when you roll it out. It it can't be trying to catch something that happened six months ago. Yes, I think that that was one of the big failings of that series. I think it's what made it work for a lot of people. I was not one of the people, (laughs) I guess. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the thing too, is, is that, you know, Trump's administration has constant rotating cast. So there's no way that you can make a timely observation on the cast members that surround Trump, only that they are a rotating cast. And thereby, like, putting somebody who is very specific in the, you know, line of sight is just kind of like, I mean, yeah, by the time that comic came out, I feel like, you know, I mean, she only had her job for a few more months or something. 
So, I mean, that's kind of the thing, right? I mean, he goes through people <laughs> really quickly. So having an observation on that might have been really interesting, you know, but I that was kind of my biggest problem, I think, with like the Lois Lane series. And it was such a bummer because everybody really liked it. I think people so often try to use, instead of like you were suggesting, Emma, capturing the the feel of these experiences and capturing the surrealness of what it is to be alive during the Trump administration, which you can capture. And you pointed out V for Vendetta really does capture the 80s in England and, and the sort of regressive politics that were rising again. And that ends up having such a powerful impact on the reader in that moment in time and even today as we see this happening, you know, this cycle continuing. But when we try to do a, you know, I, I feel that way sometimes with Supergirl, like the, the TV adaptation, like I just have a hard time getting into it because I'm like, you're just trying a little bit too hard with one-to-ones here. And I think you could do a little bit more work if you weren't trying to grapple with the actual reality that we don't even understand fully yet. You know, it, we do, but we don't have the, the ramification lens of it yet. So we're playing with putty that isn't fully formed. Whereas I feel like when you're working in your own world, again, referencing back to V for Vendetta and still pointing to the problems of the existing world the artist lives in, I think that's a very different... And, and to me, it always has a lot more weight when I feel like I have to draw and tease out some of those allegorical components and it's not just delivered like, Trump doesn't like Lois Lane. It's like, okay, well, sure. <laughs> Whereas, you know, when we talk about extremists, we're talking about a series that really examined that and confronted it and came face to face with it in a way that, you know, was so impactful that I feel like they almost had to include it going forward. Well, the the one that really got me as I went through it is I finally understood the like the weird pseudo feud between Warren Ellis and Joe Kelly that went on for like years back and forth in comics. But I don't know if it was ever personal between them. (laughs) But they're like the weird opposite of each other. (laughs) Yeah, because of course the authority comes out, right? And that was Warren Ellis's, his own contribution to this whole contemporary invention, interventionism, right? They're non-state actors and they're purposefully disrupting the status quo and, and, you know, the United Nations Security Council running everything and whatnot. But, you know, he comes in with, with authority. They're big, they're mean, they're loud. And then Joe Kelly, and I think this is, this is not very long after he co-wrote that issue of Wonder Woman with uh, Phil Jimenez when, you know, Lois is interviewing Diana and, and she ends up following her to the United Nations where she gives this huge speech that it's in a brilliant, brilliant address to the United Nations that, that you see quoted again and again it was one of my picks for the top 10 issues in the shelf dust thing i mentioned a while back but so coming fresh off of that joe kelly looks at this like you know the new kids on the block being the authority in this this loud ultra violent kind of stuff and he's like well fuck this so he creates the the elite which are just like a complete you know obvious parody of the authority with Manchester Black and whatnot, and Superman pretends to lobotomize him. And there's this this huge, like, POV shot in um, What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way, which you might also know as Superman versus the Elite, where Superman is yelling at Manchester Black, but it, it's, it's like Doug Mankey's really, like, gruesome gritty style and superman with like spit flecked and yelling you know how do you like it when you're deconstructed how do you like it like this and it's this huge blog style rant against like 
the Warren Ellis, Mark Millar incoming era. And it's almost like Superman's yelling at the reader, like, you know, get this authority shit out of here. And then Warren Ellis fires back in planetary. (laughs) And I hadn't read the Joe Kelly comic, so I didn't understand who this, this Superman miracle man type is that's screaming at the sort of John Constantine slash Spider Jerusalem amalgam character in, in Planetary. But he shows up and he's he's yelling at this composite John Constantine about how he didn't want to know that he had been created by Nazi science and all this. And and John Cassidy is is aping Doug Mankey's style, like that, that same kind of grimy, gritty style. And then the John Constantine composite just blows him in half with a shotgun. So there's this weird back and forth that you would have had to have been paying extreme attention to um, between Joe Kelly and Warren Ellis that went back and forth at least twice between them in this era about the whole what does, you know, the authority mean to the future of comic books? And like, Joe Kelly nailed it. I mean, there, there, there's a lot that you should critique about Warren Ellis's first 12 issues of The Authority, right? Like, it, it's, it should be open to scrutiny. But then Mark Millar comes in, and they are the elite. They're, like, the, right. they're rapists. They're, they're, they're brutal, terrible people. Um, not necessarily the authority themselves, but but like the the parody Avengers that that Mark Miller does, and it's just this gruesome, totally ugly thing, and it's exactly what Joe Kelly said was going to happen. This is when we lost Emma, unfortunately, in our call, so we don't have a proper send-off. But thank you so much for joining us, Emma. And also, if you would like to find Emma's work, you go to at Emma Hubois on Twitter, and Hubois is spelled H-O-U-X-B-O-I-S, so Emma Hubois, and you can read Trans Mascara, and I highly recommend that you do so at comicosity.com. We will include links to Emma's work in the show notes. We are a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot. T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.